Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Spirits and Psychics. I'm your host Morgan. And I'm Norm, following along. And today, we're talking about gurus. Which to be fair, gurus have been a little bit of a recurring character throughout a lot of these narratives. Exactly. We were with Ramdas on his spiritual journey, which was heavily influenced by his guru. Guru is a word we use casually yeah. in day-to-day speech. And it's a big sort of amorphous term. And I just want to drill down on what's so attractive about gurus, what captures the imagination, if you will, and who were some famous gurus, mm-hmm. why, and then what can we know about the guru-disciple-guru-student relationship? And I began this research also really trying to look for that line between what is guru, what is cult leader? Ooh, yeah. <laughs> because even as we were listening to Timothy Leary's whole biography, there's such a easy sidestep between where him and he and Ramdas were. That's like, okay, mm. one guy goes off into spiritual, you know, abyss in a good way, and one guy goes off into the real abyss. <laughs> well, I thought Ramdas had it pretty he had a pretty fine point on it when he said that Timothy Leary had stopped being a merry prankster mm-hmm. and then elaborated on the harmless nature of uh, a disruptive question the status quo but ha- make no material harm against anyone. I thought, yeah, that's that's a pretty good delineation. For his story, absolutely. I think gurus so the line between guru and cult leader mm-hmm. also seems to boil down to this aspect of harm and the seeker, if you will, we use that term for now, are they being empowered? Or are you becoming a victim? Are you experiencing harm in the relationship? And that seems to be the line, which, you know, from the outside seems really predictable. But that goes to speak to the dynamics of both the guru disciple relationship and a high power control group relationship where it gets really Mm -hmm. blurry when you're in it. And you know, we'll go through, I think, some images of face-to-face, here's the take on this guru, mm-hmm. and then sort of expand outwards. Okay. So I'm going to start with an excerpt from a book I really leaned on during this research process called Holy Madness by George Feuerstein. And he went in on this idea of crazy wise wisdom. So not just our idea of a guru, like Maharaji under his blanket, looking pretty serene, but gurus who are disruptors, the Timothy Leary style gurus, if he, I wouldn't necessarily say he was, but that sort of style of in your face, subverting expectations. A prankster guru, uh, merrymaking guru. (laughs) Exactly. And so he says, quote, the task of the spiritual guide, the guru, is to facilitate this mind shattering discovery. Every guru however gentle and considerate, works toward exploding the disciple's personal universe of meaning. Mm, That's pretty heavy. It is pretty heavy. And I don't think many people enter on the spiritual path thinking, you know what, I'm looking for my personal universe of meaning to be shattered today. That's what I want. I want my life just to be never the same. Perhaps not in those terms. But really, if you are a seeker, you are questioning whether the the surface explanation for reality that you get is really adequate, right? You're, you're embracing some spiritual explanation of reality. So to find the right guru, I think, is to find someone where you can finally acknowledge that 
you're yearning for something that you're not getting anywhere else. You know, and something that was really interesting to me in doing the reading for this was that the idea even of saying seeker and path mm. implies this line, you know, I'm here, yeah. the guru's here. And that in and of itself is opposed to the actual guru relationship because it puts you, the seeker, you're trying to get somewhere. And through mm -hmm. that trying, you may never get there. It's this linear thing. Whereas how the guru sees himself is constantly trying to wake you up and sort of facilitate almost an instantaneous reaction. Mm -hmm. But it's different from, you know, now I anoint you, now you've risen up. It's, it's a difference in how it's structured. And so Feuerstein really took issue with even using the word seeker. And I'm going to keep using it because everyone does. And it's kind of how we understand these things. But, you know, from the get go, how we understand spirituality is also really difficult to work within a guru discipleship model. It's just hard to exist in the modern. I mean, is it even modern? The overall spiritual journey. Did he substitute the word disciple in place of seeker? Is that where that's coming from? No, he uses both. But it's this mm. idea of, I think of, think of the Catholic Church, you're a good cardinal okay. for so long, and you go up and up and up, and maybe, you know, at the tippity top, you're anointed Pope. That is very separate from having a real awareness about the nature of reality. And the interconnectedness of being in this place where gurus are tapped into, that's a very different experience of reality than the average Joe. Maybe I'm missing some context in the, the etymology or the proper usage of guru. Because I always kind of, I hear guru, and especially in modern culture, I think we often use guru to imply expert, master, teacher, savant, you know, all of these things kind of coming together to express that someone is just at the highest level, not just of execution, but of teaching and instructing others. And you make it sound like it's more of a rank in a hierarchical system. I, you are more correct. It is hmm. this be, thing of us being in touch with this understanding. You get it. And through getting it, have then had all this other awareness unfold. Mm -hmm. The path to getting it is different for everyone. Sure, sure. And so, you know, let's journey back in our little time machine to mm -hmm. our Fred Ramdas and his account in his autobiography, Being Ramdas, of a guru he encountered after his initial awakening called Muktananda. Okay. Do you remember him at all? Uh, he met several gurus, but the one that really stuck out in my memory is the one who wasn't stereotypical what you would expect he's he's a little bit more savvy he's he's not anti-possession he's not anti-modern life but he's still kind of got a foot in both worlds so he still has that enlightened edge look up a photo of muktananda all right and there's a specific one i want you to see which is him wearing some surprisingly fashionable sunglasses oh man <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this guy can hang. Okay, so reading from Ram Dass's autobiography, we got to Australia. Muktananda was playing the dotara and singing in a private home before a 60 well-to-do people. As he sang, everyone began experiencing Shaktipat, spontaneous manifestations of Shakti. I remember a look of total disbelief on the face of one guy with a vest and a gold watch chain as he performed mudras, 
intricate yogic gestures with his hands. It was obvious something completely foreign to him. This guy's secretary was bouncing around the room in a lotus pose, and I felt nothing. And I thought, well, Maharaji is sparing me from this one. And then in another encounter, one night, Muktananda told me to stop meditating in the satsang hall at the ashram where everybody else sat and invited me to meditate in his cave, a personal room in the basement where he did his own meditation. At 3 a.m., I went down to the cave and a sadhu with a large key opened the iron gate for me. The cave room was very dark and hot. I took off my clothes and began to meditate. Immediately, I began to experience shakti. My kundalini, the serpent power, latent in the spine, began to rise. I entered into a visionary state of pure energy in which I was flying. In the vision, I was kneeling in the air before Muktananda. He was sitting at a desk, and I was floating in front of him. And then I proceeded to shoot over his head, still flying. And when I came out of the vision, I was so energized, I couldn't sit anymore. And I decided to leave the cave. I rattled the gate until the sadhu with the key came. It was about 4 a.m., and I raced for the outside courtyard to get some air. And in the distance, I saw Muktananda walking. I ran over to him barely touching the ground. And before I could speak, Muktananda said, Ramdas, did you like flying? I was blown away by the whole thing. Flying is considered one of the yogic cities, and Muktananda was manifesting his powers, perhaps to seduce me into becoming part of his entourage. That astral flight was a dramatic display of cities, more than I'd experienced with Maharaji. Because unlike Muktananda, Maharaji kept everything under the blanket, and he used his powers without seeming to do anything. There was a lot of vocabulary in there that is foreign to me. <laughs> but the, the gist of it seems to be he wasn't getting the spirit when he meditated in these more kind of group revival settings. So he went into the personal cave of his... Someone can be a guru without being your guru. Yes. And so he's questioning his relationship to this particular guru, but he goes into his cave. It, he has what sounds an awful lot like a vivid hallucination that he interprets as being a spiritual revelation. Mm -hmm. And whatever it was that he experienced is what this guru expected him to. And he's surprised by that. Not just expected, but sort of sent him there to do and experience mm -hmm. the others, other side of. And the idea of a city is a guru's yogic power. And there's a siddha path in yoga, and it gets predictably complicated. Yeah, yeah. But the idea that gurus can do these things, these powers, they can give you this bolt of Shaktipat energy, and they'll put you into a different, a different space. It's not quite like now you trip on mushrooms, but it's, mm -hmm. they're able to engage with your consciousness in a different way. Well, am I wrong to compare that to like a religious revival where people start speaking in tongues, or they get the spirit and they can't help but get up and dance? I've never been to one. Maybe we should go together. But from the outside, I suppose we could make a comparison. Okay. But it's it seems deeply meaningful and very convincing of that power. You're encountering mm -hmm. something that is definitely real because it's you know, this personal experience confirmed by in a way that couldn't have been done. But yeah. it's he's he's being convinced this guy has real power and he's wants me to experience it. And yeah, that's sort of the not the dream, but it's the idea of a magical holy man in a different country is very seductive, I think, to the creative imagination, especially if you're on a, a quest, if you're on the hunt, if you're searching for something real and true and everything that 
Ramdas and anyone who's followed in his footsteps or predated his footsteps wanted to see something real. Not just wisdom and experience and seniority, but magic. Displays of magic. Displays of power. But I guess we can use magic. <laughs> well, it, it sounds a lot like magical thinking to me. It's, it's not that he's looking for a teacher necessarily. And it's not that he's looking for guidance on how to be more effective in meditation or how to let go of you know, the negative aspects of the material world. But he's looking for proof, basically. He's looking for that demonstration that can't be disproven that this guy's got magic. He's got the chops. Nowhere, I think, will you read or have I read, you know, yoga is magic. <laughs> we can <laughs> right, we'd say right. that. You can't go into, you know, your local yoga class. Like, All right. Show me the magic. <laughs> yeah. Downward dog. But... <laughs> But it's, you, you can get a rush from doing it. It can release endorphins. I can see how it feels magical without wanting to cheapen it by calling it just magic. Because I think in this realm of magic, how someone who's really deep into this path mm -hmm. might relate to it is more of a deeper relationship with energy and the interconnectedness of me and you and how that flows. Sort of on a spectrum of perceiving the interconnectedness of the world in mm -hmm. a way that we don't do in our normal duality thinking. Is it fair to say that to be a guru, then you're also very charismatic in that when you enter the room, the energy of the room changes because kind of people are naturally drawn to you, whatever that charisma energy is? I think so. Most of the gurus that have survived to be written about or had books written about them had a charismatic element. Yeah. You know, we don't talk about like the boring guy who was a tax accountant by day and <laughs> a guru, guru by, by night. night. <laughs> I would read that comic, Guru by Night. That sounds awesome. <laughs> but, you know, it seems like, according to Ramdas and to other people that followed Muktananda, he had the special sauce. He had something. He was mm -hmm. tapped into something. You know, they had a foot in the awareness. He, he'd gotten there. But you remember. In one of our earlier episodes, when we looked at the list of sort of what a guru needed to do to be considered a respectful guru you should engage with, and one right. of those points was no sexual misconduct. Yes. <laughs> he didn't do that. <laughs> he didn't follow mm -hmm. that one. And so he dies in 1982. And in the years after it comes out that he'd been accused of a lot of sexual misconduct, and his successor... You know, that was initially the role he wanted Ramdas for. That guy was also accused of sexual misconduct and forced to step down. And this organization was subsequently left to his sister. And so she goes by the name of Guru Mai, ooh, here's a difficult one, Chidvila Sananda. Chidvila Sananda. And she now runs the SYDA, or the Siddha Yoga Dharm of America. And from the current website, they describe the Siddha path as, Imagine looking at the world you live in and recognizing divinity in everything you see and everyone you meet. Imagine facing every situation in your life with unwavering strength and delight that comes from the certainty of divine presence within you. The Siddha Yoga teachings assert that this attainment is not only possible, but is our birthright. The goal is self-realization, the unceasing experience of yoga or unity with God. The key to this divine vision of ourselves and the world is Shaktipat. Hmm. 
I mean, that doesn't sound particularly original, but it's definitely appealing. It's appealing. It's, you know, like, hey, sign me up. Let's see you in town. And uh, funny enough, they do go on tour because (laughs) what is Shaktipat, you might ask? Mm -hmm. Shaktipat is the infusion of energy from a spiritual master to awaken the seeker's own inherent spiritual power. So it's a gift from a guru who's trying to kind of open your eyes to a new reality. I'm jump-starting your battery with my car. Yeah, but it would be unfair to say that glimpsing the face of God while you're taking acid is Shaktipat. I don't think it is in this traditional definition. Mm-hmm. It seems like from what we read from you know Leary and Ramdas that it could be considered getting there. And when we talked to Augusto, that there's a, a way to necessarily have a similar experience, but it is not the same thing. Yeah, it's not one-to-one, but there's some overlap, maybe. I think there's some overlap, maybe, in the experience afterwards, but the Shaktipa experience is like a huge energy rush Okay. that I'm sort of giving to you as the seeker. And it sounds cool, and that's what they go on tour doing. <laughs> they go on tour doing Shaktipa meditations. Just handing and, them out. And did I look up tour dates? Yes. Were they near me? No. But <laughs> I was tempted. <laughs> and it's not, it has a gatekeeping element to it, you know, because someone gives it to you and so yeah. on. And different traditions have not quite a, a step stool, but there is a looking into sort of, okay, do I need to sign up for a weekend program? Like, how do I get access to this? And I was, so I was pleased to learn that you can just go to their weekend seminars and. That's all it takes. That's all it takes. Okay. It's so, that to me, tells me that it's something that is inherent, a birthright element. You are entitled to your connection with God or your connection with divinity, with spirit. And yeah, we just sort of hook you up. I mean, that sounds very appealing, but it also sounds like if they're going to go on tour, they kind of have to present that as if that's the case, that you don't have to be a genuine, earnest seeker on a winding path. You can show up for the weekend, pay whatever, and get your enlightenment to go. I mean, you can see how it'd be really easy for a desperate spiritual seeker to be lured up a mountain of hardship by this idea of, oh, guru can bless me and that'll open up the super highway. Right, right. It reminded me a lot of actually Reiki, where you receive a like a Reiki healing crystal and that helps mm-hmm. connect you to the Reiki power to then do Reiki to other people. I wasn't familiar with that. I thought Reiki was more person to person. In the same way, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. It's it's not profound. It's just a simple way of helping one another. There is actually, you connect to the energy of Reiki hmm. when you first learn it. There's a, there's a much more mystical sort of origin story at the beginning of Reiki training. Hmm. But, you know, a good guru, it's about elevating the seeker and facilitating them to do it themselves, not holding power or doling it out. So when they go on tour, they're not sort of saying I'm a guru on tour per se. It's now, now let me bless you. Though there are gurus that do that. It's connecting to that power. Okay. And meanwhile, there are gurus that tour and see people and have connections with them. It's There's really the gamut of experiences in the guru world. How does that rub you though? Like to me, that seems an awful lot like something you'd see in our spiritualism you know, road shows where people are coughing up ectoplasm. And it's just like, okay, this is this is purely nonsense. 
but I look at this, I really want to give anyone calling themselves or being broadly recognized as a guru the benefit of the doubt. And I know people got to eat, they got to sleep somewhere. And I don't think you have to take like a vow of poverty to succeed as a guru to be effective. But does that not seem weirdly extractive? Hmm. I think it's, this is where it gets difficult, because it's so easy to see how this sort of relationship can be misused and abused. Right. And then there's also the part of me that does believe these, there are genuine expressions of this in the world. Mm -hmm. And there's people, there's a lady near me that when you come and visit and we go on our little road show, we'll go Mm -hmm. see her about five hours away, that is said to be an avatar, so a embodied divine spirit. And she offers sort of group blessings, as I understand it. Not there's no waiting list to say, Oh, I want you to be my guru and let me sign up for a real one on one training. Like that's doesn't seem to be accessible. But I'm sure and the guru relationship, when we talk about it like that is sort of more like Ramdas and his teacher where it's one on one, we're exchanging where it's more intimate versus I'm just spreading the goodwill out amongst you. Well, you know, I can see if I attained enlightenment somehow, and I, I felt that I checked the boxes to be a good guru, I can see how my heart is full of love. And I want to share this wisdom and these experiences as far and wide as possible. And in a capitalist system, it makes sense that I would hang a shingle and put a price on it and let people come to me. If they're willing to pay, then they're at least open to the experience. Well, interestingly enough, the lady who's near, it's free to sign up and go. Oh. You can just go. So in that way, it's a little bit like a church service. Like anyone can take communion. Right, right. And I'm sure there's mm-hmm. donation aspects, you know, after. Gifts are encouraged. That seems to be more the norm from what I'm what I've touched on so far. But the key in in a one-on-one scenario, like I'm going to look mm. for my guru and study at their feet and, you know, follow Muktananda as he wanted Ramdas to do, is noticing how power is being used. Yeah. Are they holding themselves up really above you when they should be like a coach, you know, kind of from the sidelines encouraging you on your own path. So having a transactional relationship is not intrinsically negative or corrupting. It's really just, what is the power balance here? And are they trying to control your personhood? Or are they trying to impose self-control as part of this coaching journey? Exactly. And the the coaching aspect, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, all the variety of coaches <laughs> through the history of sports can come to mind. You know, there's been the crazy <laughs> coaches, there's been the, you know, more stoic ones. Right, but, right. They're incurred, they're sort of shouting guidance from the sidelines, but they're not doing it for you, nor are they in front of yeah. you beckoning you forward. You're mm. on your own path. And when we look at how Ramdas was interacting with his guru Maharaji, uh, Maharaji, he sent him back. He sent him away and said, go teach, go do things back in the United States. Whereas Ramdas would have stayed in India. So this is another question I've had because it does seem and I don't know how you conduct this census, but it does seem like there would be more seekers, more people on a journey of some kind, a spiritual journey, than there are gurus or recognized spiritual teachers who have kind of attained whatever that that end goal is. Is it considered kind of the status quo? Is it considered the standard best practice that you have to be a teacher in order to reach those higher states? 
or is that not for everyone? And to be a guru is to just be that, that kind of outgoing, charismatic person who can draw a crowd. I mean, I suppose to be a real guru, you know, using mm-hmm. little quotation marks, you have to have truly experienced enlightenment. You have to have gotten right. there. That's what separates it from just a teacher like Ramdas. And he was the first mm. to say, I haven't gone where Maharishi has gone. You know, he wants to go, but it's right. a different state. And part of it is seen, I think, through these stories of yogic powers and guru powers is a symptom or an effect of having touched that state. And that's sort of the, not the goal, it, the goal, but it's this example of, oh, there's a real other way of being here. Mm. And there's different examples of gurus that have done it different ways. And that's also where discernment comes in. Because to me, the most attractive gurus are the ones who who have the understanding of the, the lineage they're in. Like their heritage, you mean? Yeah. They're not just ad-libbing it, you know, from <laughs> a mishmash of stuff, which is to me oh, always I the see. symptom of a, a cult leader. They're sort of ad hocking it and mixing up texts and nothing's too pure. And, yeah. But that's, you know, personal preference. <laughs> <laughs> We're all on our own journey, I suppose. Mm. So one of the gurus will cover the Tibetan Abdet from Chongyang Trungpa, who we covered also in the Ramdas episode. Mm-hmm. He described it as thus, the guru inspires the disciple by his or her own realization, an all important point. So, for, And he goes on to say that teachings should not be labeled ancient wisdom, for they're always up to date, and they're infused with the living spirit of the adept. Hmm. I really like that. It's timeless wisdom. They're, it's living wisdom. It's, it's wisdom that you are then using to incite your own spiritual path. And if I caught that first part right, they're saying that a good guru can kind of catch you wherever you are. They're not trying to drag you to a certain place, like with your coaching analogy, but they're recognizing where you're at and sharing that living, timeless wisdom. So because the guru gets it, they're there, mm-hmm. they're already in that state. Just by doing that, they can then inspire you. And not inspire like, oh, I want to be like them, but sort of hit that spark. I'm going to, I'm going to commit. I'm going to go on my journey. I'm going to put in the work. And, you know, from that aspect of awaken, they awaken that thing within you. And it reminds me also of a good musician, like a good jam musician Mm -hmm. can jam with anyone Mm. or a good dancer can dance with you despite you know, yeah. your lack of skill. It, any any expert or anyone who's attained mastery in their craft can be on whenever they need to be on. And, you know, from the perspective of the enlightened guru, like imagine you've hit it, you're, you're there. Mm-hmm. There is no path at that point. There's no where you're going beyond. You know, there's no yellow brick road for you to further follow. And there is no yellow brick road behind you. You know, enlightenment is sudden as the ego melts off. And you're, you know, suddenly getting it. That's the, it's a phrase that I found myself using again and again, which part of me really hates because it reminds me of just finance bros trying to sell me on Tesla. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But I just find this phrase to get it a little bit more relatable and suitable to this indescribable expanded reality versus, you know, awakening the consciousness of ever-expanding universe. That just feels a little too much. (laughs) It's easy to get flowery when we talk about gurus. The literature does seem to trend that way, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. And so from another, you know, on the ground example from Ram Dass, this is how he described an encounter with his guru when he was back in New Delhi. 
We decided to look for Maharaji in New Delhi. I was supposed to meet up with Muktananda there, so it was as good of a place as any to start. But as we approached the turnoff for Allahabad, a city that plays a central role in Hindu scriptures, Danny said he wanted to visit the Mela, or festival ground. Allahabad is where three sacred rivers, the Ganges, the Yamuna, and the Saraswati, converge. And every 12 years, the city hosts an important festival known as the Priyang Mela. I was worried this would be too much of a detour, but after a lot of reflection, I decided to tell the bus driver to take that turn off. As we approached the place where we took a boat, Oh, Jesus, this is a lot of details. I didn't, I didn't clip this tight enough. So, point being, they turn off to another road. He's described some temples. Let me jump down. We were looking out the bus windows when suddenly Ramesh yelled, There's Maharaji! Stop the bus! <laughs> Maharaji has been walking along the road with this other devotee. And they told the other devotee told them later that Maharaji just suddenly looked at him and said, They've come. And as Ram Dass goes on to say, in case I'd forgotten, this miraculous being was reminding me that he knows everything and is with me every moment. My anxious decision-making and weighing of alternatives were seen in advance by Maharaji. So what did that say about my supposed free will? Mm, I think there's a few ways to read that. And it almost sounds like he's ascribing some precognitive power to these gurus when in fact the gurus are just really good at not being invested in expectations. So something happens, and the readiness and the willingness with which they accept it reads to everyone else as them knowing it was going to happen. Is, is that really what's happening? Or are they just super chill? And they go, oh, here they are. Great. I bring it, read it as being super chill. Because in this instance... You know, Ramdas has been, they're truly just driving around looking for Maharaja. They don't know where he yeah. is. They think he might be in New Delhi. They, I mean, that part of India is quite large. And so they end up in this random place and they didn't intend to go. And suddenly he's there as if to say, hey, hey guys, totally expecting you. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is, I right. think, deeply meaningful in the personal. And yeah, I think when we zoom, I mean, if you zoom out, you can explain it away in a bad actor way, or you can mm -hmm. explain it ways there. I think super chill might be where, <laughs> where we land that point. I mean, it's also easy to take a coincidence like that and go, it had meaning, it had purpose. You can read meaning and purpose into anything, but suppose the opposite had happened and he went on that digression and he didn't run into him. He probably would have had an experience that either wasn't worth writing about or he could have reframed it as being profound in a different educational way. You you can kind of take what you want. I think, you know, similarly, when you're on the path and you do have something that could be coincidence, you know, could be divine, but let's just say coincidence, it can feel really meaningful because you want it to be, because you're looking for it, and then we make meaning out of it. Exactly. I don't think you have to be on the path to read coincidence or to read profundity into coincidence that happens in life. Life's full of coincidences. And that's okay, because that's how we make meaning. I mean, you'd say, our friendship started when I saw you in that airport waiting area. <laughs> <laughs> Us wearing our matching study abroad t-shirts. Yeah. And I just knew we would be the start of a you know, wonderful friendship. <laughs> and that would be an interesting way to read it. <laughs> but it's also couple kids on a study abroad, we see each other because we're looking for other people wearing these dorky sweatshirts. <laughs> like, was it profound or was it structurally what we were there to do? I don't know. And if it's structurally what you were there to do, 
there's no problem with doing it in that structure. If you are mm-hmm. a guru, let's say you've attained enlightenment and you're saying, okay, people want to have a profound experience. I'm here to give it to them. And assuming that in a completely positive, you know, assuming good intentions way. This to me is why I associate like catching the spirit with dancing because mm. you can't dance when your inhibitions are up. You know, you have to release your inhibitions. And when you can get into a big group of people and do free associative speech or dance or anything else, whatever impulse takes you, it is going to feel like a really profound experience because you're just able to be with other people without inhibitions. And that doesn't necessarily make it false. No, not at all. You know, because there's an explanation doesn't take away the meaning of it or the necessary truth of it. It's how those things are contextualized by, you know, the preacher in a revival scenario or whatever group of friends you're with when you have that wild night out where you felt really free or a guru who helps frame it for you. That is then where you create meaning, you build things of it. And that sort of subtle distinction, I think, can be the difference between having an incredibly positive relationship with your guru, like Ram Dass did. Mm-hmm. I mean, he ended his life totally fulfilled by this relationship. And you know, someone like Timothy Leary, who had a lot of similar experiences and built a real ego trip out of it. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's where I think the charisma is the real key ingredient. Because who better to help you release your inhibitions than a very charismatic person going, I'm dancing, man. It's all cool. We could dance together. And that's where I think the the guru trap becomes very real. Because someone who's charismatic and can condition you to release your inhibitions, that could be a very helpful coach who's doing healthy things with you. That could be someone very abusive and controlling who wants to be possessive of your personhood. So I want to take us on a little journey through time to mm-hmm. one of the original big gurus that came to the West, mm. Paramahamsa Yogananda. And this from him is sort of where we get this phrase self-realization. His organization in America was called Self-Realization Fellowship. Mm. And through him came a book called Autobiography of a Yogi. It was published in the yeah. 40s. You've heard of that. Everyone's heard of it. Yeah, it was yeah, big. Yeah. And so the preface of it, and I, I, I want to read this because of who wrote it. And I think you'll get a little little tickle out of Uh it. Another cameo coming up, I anticipate. The value of Yogananda's autobiography is greatly enhanced by the fact that it is one of the few books in English about wise men of India, which has been written not by a journalist or a foreigner, but by one of their own race and training. In short, a book about yogis by a yogi, by a man named Walter Evans Wentz, who knew Sri Yukteswar, so that guy's guru. Mm-hmm. And he wrote the Tibetan Book of the Dead. What? Yeah. This guy wrote that book. Not translated? Wrote? Translation of the Bardo. Okay. In 1927. Uh, but he went through, he was out there, man. He was there before, like pre World War One, traveling in Asia and worked with a, a Tibetan Lama to to translate the bardo and made that, you know, wrote that book in English for yeah. that would then be taken into a mansion's like bowling alley with a bunch of guys tripping <laughs> acid. Man, talk about being on the path. This guy's in. You should look up a photo of him real quick. Walter Evans dash Wenst. This guy looks like my granddad. <laughs> 
I mean, he's out there, man. He looks like he's in Shangri-La. <laughs> and he was a theosophist his whole life. Of course he was. Yeah. Totally inspired as a teenager by none other than Madame Helena Petrovna Blavatsky. And there again, he he bought completely into it and then dedicated his life to exactly the tenets of theosophy. Exactly. He's going out there, making the relationships, writing the literature, translating, redistributing this, this specialized knowledge. What a guy. And so here we have yet another fork of the river that comes from Madame Blavatsky through mm-hmm. the Tibetan Book of the Dead that led to... Ram Dass and Timothy Leary. It's all connected. It does, <laughs> it does give one pause. I'll say that. So a lot of uh, autobiography of a yogi is him telling stories of his youth, him growing up, mm-hmm. how he became a yogi. And what I like about those early stories is it's a, it's a it's like a little kid who wants – he's sort of surrounded by holy men in, you know, late 1800s India and comes from a middle upper middle class family. And so he sets out as like just trying to meet every yogi he can as a, hmm. as a little kid. So here's one of the stories. He's 12 years old, and he's sent on an errand by his father to take a letter to a man in Benares, now called Varanasi, which from their home in a city called Barely is about nine hours by car. Oof. So he's just at 12 years old and sent nine hours away by train. And the dad has lost the address of the man, but says... They have a mutual friend, a Swami Prana Bananda. Prana Bananda. Bananda. Yes, Prana Bananda. There's a lot of ANs in that name. <laughs> and so he tells his son, go find him. And he does. You know, the front door was open. I made my way to a long hall-like room on the second floor. A rather stout man, wearing a loincloth, was seated in lotus posture on a slightly raised platform. His head was enwrinkled. Uh, his head and unwrinkled face were clean-shaven, and a beatific smile played about his lips. So he basically gets there, and he starts asking around, hey, do you know this Swami? And he's eventually mm. pointed to the house. And the Swami immediately tells him, he knows who he is, and says he will find the friend. And tells Yogananda that he thinks fondly of his father, and the Swami apparently has a pension from when he worked for his dad. There's a connection. And he talks then about a second pension pension of fathomless peace, a reward for many years of deep meditation. I never crave money now. My few material needs are amply provided for, and later you will understand too, the second pension. And the Swami immediately goes still and goes into a trance. And when he comes out, he says, the friend will be here shortly. 30 minutes later, guy walks in through the door. All right. So Yogananda like runs down and asks the guy, what happened? The guy says, yeah. Something was so mysterious. An hour ago, I'd just finished my bath in the Ganges, and the Swami approached me. No idea how he knew I was there. And the guy says that the Swami told him Yogananda was waiting, and he should go. And so he walks along, and Swami disappears in the crowd. And it was as if he was really there. Hmm. And then Yogananda turns and asks the Swami, What's up? And the Swami replies, Why are you stupefied at all by this? The subtle unity of the phenomenal world is not hidden from true yogis. I instantly see and converse with my disciples in distant Calcutta, and they similarly transcend at will every obstacle of gross matter. So why are you excited about the fact that I can communicate instantaneously across time and space? That's just yoga stuff. That's just yoga stuff. And he has a lot of other stories that... (laughs) 
could be in this giant chapter called That's Just Yoga Stuff of him at the turn of the century <laughs> interacting with different yogis who have different powers and display different things. And that's part of, I think, what makes this autobiography so exciting when it drops. Oh, at the time, yeah. And this this remains conventional wisdom that to be a real yogi is to do magic. Is to have powers. But the thing that's interesting that he talks about in Autobiography of a Yogi is that the true ones stop doing magic stuff very early and because they see it ultimately as cheap tricks hmm. and as not worthy of their time and that the deeper states of their path are much more interesting. And he describes he has his own guru that he learns from, Sri Yukteswar, but then also he encounters a lot of them. And some of them are yogis who don't have any disciples. They're just doing their thing, you know, meditating. So you don't have to, you don't have to be in that teaching situation to be a good guru. No, they're just out there. I mean, I think that's probably the difference between guru and yogi. Gotcha. Okay. Where guru's teaching, they're spreading, whereas some of the yogis that he describes are just out, essentially out in the woods. They're just, or they're just doing their thing with a small group of people supporting them. And mm -hmm. it's, a little mundane. Sounds nice. I don't know. And that, of course, made me think of Madame Blavatsky when she went to India, mm -hmm. into this milieu, and is demanding, show me the power, show me your stuff. And they're right. just dismissing her left and right, calling her a charlatan. Because she's asking for the wrong thing. She's asking for the wrong thing. I don't know how great her deep meditation skills were at that point in her life. Mm-hmm. Well, and contextually, she's profoundly uncomfortable the entire time. So I can see her getting grumpy and be like, do some magic. I came out here for yogi magic. Come on. <laughs> Show me how you bury a cup. <laughs> yeah. I, I can relate to that. And it's very enticing. Who doesn't, you know, it's, it's totally enticing. Mm. Well, yeah, on a superficial level, the magic is the most exciting part because it's more material. The, the non-material stuff, it's so hard to describe in non-flowery language. It's so hard to put into concrete terms. So yeah, it is more exciting to watch someone do materialist magic. And it's also why you can appreciate I have trouble thinking of words more profound than just get it. <laughs> right. When you know, you know. Yeah. A little epilogue about Yogananda. He came to the United States in the 1920s. Mm -hmm. And he was touring the country. I mean, think of everything that was going on in the 20s. And imagine just Indian guy in a robe. You can look up a picture of him to get a real image. Yeah, he would have fit right in. Bonnie and Clyde are going on the background of this guy doing lecture tours. The World Fair. He would have crossed over with I Houdini. Mean, yeah, absolutely. He would have. I don't know. It seems like just that time of the world where kind of everything was possible. Everything's fascinating. Yeah. And he, he dies in the US in the 40s had a ashram of sorts, a, a place in California. And his direct students are still around, but really, really old. A lot of them are mm -hmm. students of former direct students. And his legacy of self-realization fellowship lives on. There's no immediate scandals that I could find. I once got into a really deep YouTube hole of a man who studied with him in the 30s. And he has since passed, but he talked about Yogananda with such reverence and joy and just how his life was filled with joy from studying with him. And Self-Realization Fellowship also was one of the first institutes that offered home study materials about... Really? Yeah, about the yoga path. You could write in and get them mailed to you. 
mail-ordered spiritual teachings. Yeah. I like that. And they'd come every few months. And they, they're still around. I'm sure they've updated it. But the idea was you do it one, once every couple months and to deepen. And it was a way of connecting outside of this traditional one-on-one guru model. What is the relationship between these different guru institutes? Because you've mentioned a couple times these gurus either coming to the U.S. or not, but they create a school mm-hmm. and the school is kind of systematizing whatever their teachings are. Mm-hmm. Like, Do they view each other as equally legitimate and we're all just making an earnest effort to try to disseminate our wisdom? Do they have a competitive relationship with each other? I didn't come across anything too explicit about it. There was one book that I hadn't yet read that was a bit more mm. into how this can get hyper commercialized in the modern era, you know, because you're competing over attendance and the market for people to come to your talks. But as a model, and especially at this time, it seems to sort of follow this. You come over, you found a group that starts to do your work, Mm -hmm. and it spreads from there. And then the key disciples that then go on and do their own thing. And that's how you pass down the spiritual lineage sort of taking this spiritual lineage into a wider audience in in the United States and Europe as well as sort of as I think of as new world relative to where it started. But the cool thing is that Self-Realization Fellowship, they're really worldwide now and they have an online meditation center. Interesting. So that you can log on and meditate at the same time with you know, other people and essentially have the benefits of group meditation and the blessings of group meditation while being alone. Hmm. So they seem to be really pioneering this online community, which I thought was pretty cool. So you don't just need to meditate in your closet. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I never realized how important it was to be meditating in a group. I What's the idea there? I think it's one of the benefits of being in a spiritual community is this Mm what happens when you meditate with other people and say the combined focus lifts you up. Oh. Just like our talk, our revival scenario. You don't start talking in tongues by yourself. That's weird. Right. You got to be around other people. <laughs> well, it's also like I can watch my favorite movie on my own however much I want. But when I watch it with other people, even if we don't communicate a lot verbally during the movie, it's a different experience. And even, you know, Ramdas's spiritual community, his satsang, that was so crucial to the development of his spiritual life and his material life. And so hmm. having other people with whom you're aligned spiritually is, I think, pretty crucial to the deepening of that path in your life. Interesting. And I think it, it, it makes it enrich, it enriches it. Yeah. And it, it would bring a novelty to an experience that you might otherwise be very familiar with individually. And to flip this to the dark side, that's also why Mm. high power control groups get really difficult to leave because there can be joy in the community element. It's attractive. Yeah. That can be every toxic job you have too. (laughs) I love my coworkers. Maybe you even love your boss, but something toxic is happening there. Mm. And so let's go on a little bit further in time. Take me with you. To Chogyang Trungpa. So we mentioned him in the Ramdas episode where they crossed paths and Ramdas was pretty open about saying he didn't get him. Mm, right. And so he was recognized as an incarnation of a famous Lama. And which means that when he was born, other it's like the what's that movie that sort of illustrates this for the the Western mind? Uh, 
they do it in Avatar pretty well, where they have like <laughs> the one childhood I'm toys. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, <laughs> but yeah, I'm thinking of the one where it was like telling the story of the Dalai. It's similar to how they select the Dalai Lama, where they present three things in front of you, and yeah. the baby picks one, and then they do some other tests. And so it's apparently not just done for the Dalai Lama, but with other lamas in this hierarchy system. And sure. so this guy's represented as one of those. And apparently he's just a savant pretty quickly with the whole deep knowledge of Tibetan Buddhism. And in 1959, he leads a group of 300 refugees out of Tibet into India. Wow. He then learns English. And by 1963, he's in Oxford on a scholarship. Wow, he's really going for it. He founds a meditation center in Scotland and immediately sort of confronts what he called unrealistic expectations from his British <laughs> followers. Fair. And he had a significant just spiritual frustration and change when he went on a trip to Bhutan in 1968. And he realized that his he was supposed to expose spiritual materialism so that his students could develop authentic spirituality. Expose spiritual materialism. Mm -hmm. So outing it as a distraction, as yes. a negative thing? Yes, as a distraction, a negative thing, as this is not what we're meant to be doing, we're meant to be you know, getting in deep. And what that tells me is this, you know, time period, 60s, where we just were, there's mm -hmm. such a huge disconnect between how the West is expecting enlightenment to be delivered to them versus mm -hmm. how different traditions relate to that path. So it's a little bit anti-magic, it sounds like, but it also sounds like it could be anti-psychoactive. It sounds to me like it's sort of anti-weekend warrior spiritualism. Ooh, okay. Like, you can't just walk in here with your tie-dye shirt, <laughs> you hippie, <laughs> and expect to get enlightened over one weekend. Like, this stuff is your life. It's it's yeah. the foundation of your reality. Is Return what you're to doing. the path. It's, so it's not casual in that sense. Mm. It's also not, I think, casual in the sense of, oh, I'll just go to India and then come back. Or I, he might even have looked at someone like Ramdas and said, you're not even getting it deep enough. Mm. You're just in the trappings of it. You're, he's even yeah. trying to burrow deep underground. Is this supposed to be an aggressive thing? Like, well, is he shaming people or is it more just like, hey, you know? Well, let <laughs> me tell is... you what he did. So, oh, boy. So he's unclear how to accomplish this. And not long after, he has a like terrible car accident where he has body paralysis on one side. Oh, man. But his, according to him, his spiritual understanding just lit up. Reminds me of Ram Dass again. Reminds me of Kanye West. Ooh, yeah, through the wire. <laughs> and he realized that he shouldn't hide behind his identity as a monk to serve Buddhism. Hide behind his identity as a monk. Exactly. So this is something we see when Western folks like drop their associations and totally go the opposite way of their wearing robes, growing beards, just like Ram Dass did. Mm -hmm. And this guy, he starts wearing Western suits. He marries a white lady, ends up with a group of students at a property in Vermont where he's eating and drinking and smoking, doing psychedelics. And that sort of behavior is exactly what Ramdas recounted and felt really awkward about. Mm. But Trungpa is doing it with a purpose. And amongst his students, for all the looseness, he just snaps the whip of discipline and will remind them of bring them back to the spiritual path 
because he he's actually quite conservative in his structure around understanding Buddhism and how you grow on the spiritual path. Because remember, he comes out of Tibet, where that stuff is very hierarchical, it's very structured, and they use discipline to truly get seekers on the path. Because they're not even seekers at that point, they're junior lamas, and they're institutionalized. You're making him sound a little bit like a youth pastor who like shreds guitar and skateboards for Jesus to get the spirit, like trying to find a different way to shirk expectation and tradition to bring people ultimately back into a traditional spiritual fold. Well, imagine that youth pastor and put this descriptor on him. One mm. critic called Trumpa's methods and his structures medieval. So. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So imagine a medieval oriented youth pastor. That's terrifying. <laughs> so on the other hand, though, He's also, well, I suppose it's the same hand. He's also doing crazy things. He's, it's, this is a true example of crazy wise. It's not a gentle mm. method. He starts working with disciples in the methods of Tantra, which I should add is not just sex. We're all familiar with Sting. <laughs> sting and Tantra. And anytime you say Tantra, everyone thinks sex, but it's not just sex. <laughs> It's just concentration, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Okay. And he warned his students that working with Tantra was like lurking with a live wire. And author George Feuerstein elaborates, quote, the predictable result is a terrific jolt that can wreck a person for life, or at the very least, cause emotional trauma, end quote. Oh, so this is a glimpse of enlightenment that can be damaging? Uh, it's a method, I suppose, of enlightenment that is hardcore. Let's Ooh. put it that way. It's not a... Uh, buy the ticket, take the ride, and you walk necessarily walk away scot free. This is mm. where we start to see examples of getting into guru relationships that are oh, the word that comes to mind is pay to play, but it's not it. It's there's a chance you lose something as much as you gain mm. something. It's not passive. It's asking you to engage. So let me tell you what happened to a guy named W. S. Mervin and his yeah. wife. <laughs> Let's hear it, Mervin. Merwin. Oh, Merwin. I said it the German way, please. Uh, <laughs> so they joined a retreat, and they weren't officially students, but they'd just been asking and asking, saying, we really want to join. And so he lets them. And they show up late while a Halloween party is going on. Hmm. And in the middle of what was like a three-month seminar. And the party's intense and raucous. And Merwin and his wife, they're not into it. So they go upstairs. Okay. And then someone goes up requesting that they come down. Like, Trumpa really wants to see you. They said, no, no, we're, we're down for the night. Yeah. And then <laughs> their door gets broken down by drunken students who drag them out. Merwin immediately bottles some of them in the head. They're dragged to Trumpa, where he starts cussing them out, insulting them. Someone interjects with a version of like, hey, that's a little too much. And Trumpa just decks that guy. Whoa. <laughs> this is a guru's methods. Well, Tearing someone out of their bed in the middle of a party, <laughs> dressing them down, and violently putting down anyone who tries to question your technique. Well, the incident's widely condemned, and it lost Trungpa a lot of grants. And uh, some people <laughs> said it, quote, damaged the cause of Buddhism in the West. Wow. But Trungpa did not apologize. And get this, Merwin and his wife stayed for the whole seminar. Wow. They so stayed. It, at what cost, but it did seem to work. And 
that's a little bit where the debate about his methods come in. You'd say, because you can very easily just be like, what are you talking about? He's not teaching any Buddhism. He just drank too much and like went on a power <laughs> trip, which is one way to read that scenario. And another way could be, are you still trying to pull people out of their consumer complacency around the stuff? You have people that think, oh, we can just come. They try to come. Then they say, and then they don't want to engage and do tiptoeing in the tulips around it. And you're trying to snap them into it. A little bit like um, if you're having a conversation with someone and they're on their phone and they're not mm. connecting with you and so you smack it out of their hands. Right, right. But, you know, smacking their face instead. (laughs) (laughs) Or both. (laughs) The recurring theme here seems to be that as a guru, you have to be on all the time. But just because you've, you've attained enlightenment and you're in this guru state doesn't mean that you're always at your best. Because you're still human and you're still subject to the whatever flaws you brought to the table to begin with. Pretty much. I think... You have an aspect of expanded consciousness when you've gotten there, mm-hmm. that you're you're one foot out of this world, and but you are still in a human, but you are always on. And I like that list that one spiritual teacher provided, which said there's they never have an off day. They're never mm. you know, one way in public and a different way in private. They're always the same. That's a part of having gotten there. And the interesting thing about Trungpa is that he does all this weird stuff, but he doesn't seem to be on or off. He's just weird all the time. Right, right. So he's consistent. He's consistent. So the difference between a new age spiritual teacher and a crazy wise teacher like Trungpa is summed up in the in, by Feuerstein as, quote, the new age guru imposes a narrative on our lives and offers change through effort or dramatic events. The crazy wisdom teacher interrupts the mind flow of self-image and social role. They're two separate things entirely. So you've been using the term crazy wise or crazy, crazy wisdom a lot. And I, for a long time, had just kind of accepted that as you putting emphasis on a term. But now I'm starting to see this is actually a, a term that is used in this vernacular. It's it's the, what do you call it? It's the subtext of Feuerstein's book. So his full book title is Holy Madness, Spirituality, Crazy Wise Teachers, and enlightenment. So hmm. I'm lifting that term from George Feuerstein, who okay. unfortunately, immediately I wanted to say, gosh, got to get him on the show. We should interview him. Died in 2013. Dang. This happens to me a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's because a lot of what you're drawing from comes from a particular period in history. So it stands to reason that we'd be on the outer edge <laughs> of a lot of the major writers and figures. Well, I also just don't believe in reinventing the wheel. Like I really do look for who wrote about this stuff first before trying to mm-hmm. weave it all together myself. So Feuerstein, he really believes that Trungpa was one of the most legit of all crazy wise adepts that he covered. Hmm. And he said, either our conventional understanding is too limited to comprehend all of this guru's behavior, or he, as an embodied being, was subject to error, which would not, however, invalidate all the merit of his work. Like other crazy wise adepts past and present, Changpa remains an enigma. So he's acknowledging that you can be this incredible guru and still be a flawed human being. He's at the same fork in the road where he could have been absolutely enlightened and like this was just his weird method, or he could be enlightened in some ways and still have failings. 
still be yeah. being a bit naughty and doing things he shouldn't do. Yeah. It doesn't sand the edges off all your foibles. And I'm really inclined to believe that enlightenment, as we understand it, is a fuzzy fog. Like, because you have an aspect of yourself that's always incarnated as a human. Right. You know, as much as we have from Yogananda's autobiography, these stories of gurus that are meditating and only eating, you know, tree bark or something and doing <laughs> magical-esque things, you're, I, I'm leaning on the side of you're still incarnated as a human until you're not. And so that part of you is connected to that human experience. And there is a, it is this battle between dual, dual thinking and unity thinking or unity non-thinking. You've mentioned before that part of what characterizes enlightenment is your ego melting away. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like maybe ego death is overstating it because the ego can never really die until you leave the body, so to speak. The ego is baked into the body. So even when you've reached enlightenment, you're still managing ego. It's just not the driving force in your in your thought patterns or your decision-making or your behavior. Let's replace ego with the word separateness. And they talk about duality, unity, mm. but let's just settle with separateness for now. That part of having a, a worldview with duality and separateness is that we see ourselves and we see other. Our individual consciousness that knows I was a child, I was a person, and yet you're always kind of living in a perpetual present. And the self, you see yourself as kind of your own little universe of a person. Mm -hmm. We don't necessarily think, oh, I can, I'm connected to an infinite consciousness. Maybe you can intellectually realize that, but unless you have a lot of training, yeah. you're just like, I'm just mean. I can go to a real peaceful place, but eh. Yeah. And you're trapped in that self. Exactly. And the I is separate from the whole. I, Morgan, I'm an individual out here created thinking. And an image that I really like comes from Alan Watts in one of his talks. He described the self as a tree branch that sort of extends out and grows and suddenly is looking back at the trunk going, hey, what are you doing there? That bark's kind of ugly. What are you, <laughs> what are you doing? The bark, let's, we got to shape you up. You got to get straighter. And that's the self-reflective and self-criticism instead of appreciating mm. this wholeness of, of the self. And to take that one step farther, let's imagine that tree branch of me and the self and the wholeness is all of humanity or all of existence. And so enlightenment is the tree branch accepting its membership as part of this tree. And and sort of being able to be a branch and part of the tree. Hmm. And it's hard to talk about the guru stuff because from a perspective of duality, you're always seeking, you, you know, no one gets to the guru state and then writes about it. And then it's inviting, you, know, you always get dethroned. It's hmm. the the worldview that we have of duality and separateness just does not allow for the guru phenomena to be really understood in the framework of what's trying to do. And it's hard to accept genuine spiritual authority in general in a dualistic framework. Unless you're deep on the path. Yeah, it's always looking to explain away things. I mean, we do it all the time. You're explaining mm -hmm. it away on one hand or you know, trying not to oversimplify it. Right. Yeah. It's a it's a hard balance to strike, and what your your mileage will vary based on what your motives are. Mm -hmm. I liked this quote from Feuerstein about this. He spent, I think, the last half of the book sort of going on about this point. A guru, sheikh, zedek, roshi, lama, or spiritual director cannot be understood in this worldview. 
as a mere anomaly or even a psychopath or a charlatan. By the logic of his or her non-participatory lifestyle, the ego-bound individual is obliged to explain away the existence of genuine spiritual authority. This attitude is apparently vindicated by the numerous rogue gurus of our day and their obsequious duped followers. <laughs> That's kind of hard to argue with. Yeah. No, it's exactly it because there are so all the evidence of bad actors is easy to be like, well, gurus are a racket. Gurus are full of it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in a way, they're not wrong. Anyone should approach, I think, a guru, not even a relationship, just like if you encounter one in the wild, with not necessarily healthy skepticism, but healthy discernment. I've just been like, this, you know, isn't necessarily a freebie. Right. To be looking for evidence. And if someone is a guru, that doesn't mean they're the your guru either, right? No, it means that you're encountering someone that's touched that type of enlightenment and presumably stays there. So even if you accept them as totally legitimate, that still doesn't mean they're someone that you're going to engage with very deeply. True. And this actually brings us to another whole section of this research that I wasn't expecting, which was hmm. the responsibility of the seeker for their own enlightenment in a guru-disciple relationship. Hmm. That seems like something a good guru would cover pretty early. Yes. And I don't think it's a case of, you know, you've had the ruby sipplers all along and, you know, what's the point <laughs> of seeking out the wizard, but rather that, you know, the path is inward and the transformation's inward. So like our coach analysis, they're getting you further to yourself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the phrase doing the work is sort of bopped around new age writings, but I actually like it because we can't think that the enlightened one is going to, you know, bless us and immediately get us enlightened. With things like Shaktipat, you can get there briefly. And mm -hmm. I've talked to people anecdotally who've had experiences where they were suddenly there, but they always fade. You come back right. down to earth because just like how Ramdas talked about taking psychedelics, you can touch it, but you can't stay. You have to learn right. how to stay. And that's your path to get there and stay there all the time. The journey's not touching it the journey is being with it. There's a great phrase describing enlightenment, which is, you know, before you reach enlightenment, you're just, you know, chopping wood and carrying water. Mm -hmm. And then you go out and you get enlightenment. And then what is life? Chopping wood and carrying water. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a reframing. It means that you're doing the same things you did before, but with a completely different inner experience of it. This is like the Sisyphus must be happy thing. He's still pushing that boulder up the hill. It, you know, it looks the same from the outside, but yeah, completely hmm. different inner experience. And that's, I think, a more helpful way to think of enlightenment rather than a pseudo, you know, deity. Now, now you're living like an angel and you're not a hmm. part of this reality. Whereas you're, you're still living, you still got to do your taxes. But this also speaks to how the magic isn't the exciting thing. Mm -mm. That was the theme in remote viewing, too, where it's like, I mean, yeah, we can do this, but it's not really exciting. You're missing the point. And so the, there's a psychologist named Francis Vaughn who uses a typology to describe spiritually motivated men and women, which I wanted to share with you since hmm. we're here. And she, <laughs> she distinguished between a sycophant who, quote, enjoys basking in reflected glory but is unwilling to adopt a real discipline. And this is a bad disciple or a bad guru? I'm going to say bad disciple because we're in the section of people that are attracted to gurus on the path. And mm. I don't want to say bad as you're 
naughty, but like the different categories of people, because not every, not every guru is a appropriate guru for you. And not every Mm -hmm. disciple is an appropriate person to have discipling with you. (laughs) Yeah. Well, if you're going to do this like shared meditation and the community of seekers is important to your journey. Yeah. Not everyone is going to fit within that community for, for your journey. And so the sycophant, then you have the seeker who is Mm. like a free floating sponge on the spiritual path and generally lacks commitment. Oh, so I don't want to say I'm, I feel seen, but <laughs> I'm, I am a bit of a sponge. And then, then you have the devotee, whose love for the teacher is so all-consuming that it leaves little room for the balanced development of his or her own personality. Mm-hmm. I read an autobiography of a woman who found a guru in the 70s in India and spent about 20 years as her handmaiden, mm-hmm. and then eventually, you know, broke faith and like split. And that pretty much characterizes how she wrote yeah. that relationship, that she'd completely shut off her own development and deepening of it in service. It's hero worship is what it became. Mm. And the last one's the student who approaches spiritual life primarily through the mind and likes to engage the teacher in verbal considerations. And finally, the disciple who's serious about spiritual growth and is prepared to discipline himself in light of teaching and demands. So where does that put us? I, I think we're sponges. Yeah. <laughs> Are we sponges? I think I don't we're know. sponges. I, re- I relate to the student a little bit more because I'm not sure I'm on a path, but I'm definitely interested in meeting good teachers <laughs> and just intellectually hearing about it. I have to say, though, I'm, I'm at a place in my life where I definitely don't know if I want to get my reality totally shattered. Like, I've got kids. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. I can't be like running off. <laughs> but you're a free floating sponge. Hey. Yeah. Sponges are very useful in our everyday life. So what they're what she's trying to get at with this sort of breakdown is that we're actually pretty ignorant or insensitive to the spiritual process. And hmm. when we have our own she describes them as seekers are little more than unhappy neurotics in quest of self fulfillment rather than self transcendence. Ouch. So not to go so far, but to say when we are on the spiritual path, like you said, something's wrong and you're looking for something. You are unwell. That is why you showed up to India and you're panhandling, looking for a guru. And that doesn't necessarily put you in the best state of mind to begin actually getting spiritual information. It makes you, yeah, very vulnerable and maybe not at your most discerning. Mm-hmm. And the woman, her name is uh, Gail Treadwell, and her autobiography is called Holy Hell. <laughs> Ooh, yeah. <laughs> it was about that. She was showed up in India in the 70s and was really empty. It was her work. She was searching mm-hmm. for something to fill it, found a lady, had this blind faith, and yeah, it took her 21 years to sort of get out of that thrall. Wow. And this, she you know, highlights this point in that autobiography, if there's a difference between genuine submission to a guru in a tandem relationship Mm -hmm. versus submission that is to an authority, which is what we'd call cult-like, there's, you're not worshiping a guru. Mm -hmm. Whereas when it gets bad, you are. They have infallibility, you can't question them. Or there's a childlike adoration and fawning. Mm -hmm. Like you've sort of turned off your critical thinking or engaging with your own spiritual journey and you're just doing whatever they say. If they said it, it must be right. Exactly. And I think, you know, this is another challenging aspect 
of guru discipleship or engaging with a spiritual teacher is you have to keep your brain turned on the whole process because just like a good coach, they're not playing the game for you. You're playing, the, right. you're on the field. And so they should be your resource, but they're not telling you what to do. It becomes a very fine line because they are challenging you and they are probably going to suggest some things that subvert your expectations or don't sound quite right because you don't get it yet. Mm -hmm. That's why you're relying on their coaching. But that can, that can blur into predatory, controlling, exploitative instructions very, very easily. So when guru relationships go correctly, you get mm -hmm. a mature disciple, you know, someone who is mature enough on the inside, who can demonstrate obedience, but they're also submitting to the teacher as an inner authority. And in that case, the teacher is an extension of their conscience, sense of right and wrong. Like Ramdas, he'd talk about how Maharaji was inside of him a bit, telling him, do this, don't do that, pushing him. He had this connection mm. on the inside, if you will, with someone who died a long time ago. So it's not someone who contradicts your sense of morality. It's an extension of your sense of morality. They, they're they not making demands that run counter to your innermost feelings of right and wrong. Hmm. Assuming that the teacher's properly enlightened and the disciple is mature enough, there shouldn't be a huge clash. They They might ask things of you that are difficult or not what you want to hear, but you're moving in the same direction with them, which is divine enlightenment. You're getting to the same goal. Like, for example, when Maharaji told Ramdas, yeah, you need to stay here for the winter and this guy will teach you. Ramdas could have pitched a fit. Yeah, I'm going to check right. another way to India and I'm going to follow you. And instead he's like, okay, this is what I'm meant to do. So he does it. But it took humility, not a complete suspension of morality. Yeah, he's not asking him to go, you know, club dogs in the street or something. Or say, <laughs> right. you need to go and earn me money for my thing. You need to start raising money for the cause, Rob does. Then I'll teach you. Yeah. He's just challenging him. He's challenging you and you're going to the same goal. Just like a good co athletic coach, their goal is for you to be mm. a better player. So they don't overwork you. They push you in your right. workouts, but they're not trying to make you injure yourself. Right, right. But they'll make you run that extra lap when you don't want to. The more we use this, more the more I like the coach analogy. I think it's I very mean, material. But. It's it's growing on me for sure, and <laughs> but it's a it's a sticky. You know, there's a lot of overlap. It's a sticky place. Yeah, it's it's nuanced. It's subtle, and it takes a high degree of awareness to discern. Yeah. So one of the things that struck me about Feuerstein's analysis of all of this was by his assessment, more people failed in the guru discipleship relationship than succeeded. Mm. So we had more people like Gail Shredwell than Ramdas. Mm. That does make sense. It, it, of course, it makes sense. If you have a huge wave of everyone to go to India to find their own Maharaji, I mean, come on. And also taking into account that there's a lot of people on different types of journeys, and you might not be the right fit for that type of step. You know, a lot of people want to play NBA basketball, but not everyone's going to make yeah. the team. <laughs> it, it does stand to reason. But then a guru is a nice to have that's incredibly beneficial for your spiritual journey. But surely it can't be essential if it's more likely to go wrong or be mismatched or turn into something predatory than be a true guru-disciple relationship. 
Well, that's why I've always been drawn to teachers and teachings that talk about using our everyday lives as our ground zero for Mm -hmm. spiritual awakening. And it's not about getting away from life as it is, but using the way our lives are to get deeper into spirituality. And the idea of letting go or releasing frustrations or working on your inner talking mind are much more attractive to me than someone saying, okay, you want to get enlightened, you need to go on this week-long retreat, leave your family. Mm. Well, it doesn't make sense that it would be the same for everybody. And any any teachings that insists that it is the same for everybody and everyone who gets there goes through this exact path, that does start to sound more culty. I mean, it's hard also with, you know, high power control groups or cults or bad situations, because when mm. we talk about the, the role of the disciple or the seeker and kind of what they're not even bringing to the table, like how you're showing up, it can start to feel really victim blaming. I don't want to look at someone mm-hmm. like Gail Trevor and be like, well, you did it to yourself. And there goes 20 years because there's real suffering that happens. I mean, some of, oh yeah, you've, you've real suffering, real, not bad things can happen, but it does. Even in her own book, she talks about how she was susceptible to it with this blind faith. And mm-hmm. it does take two to tango. You, she was ignoring aspects and not questioning. And, you know, luckily, good epilogue. She apparently has a much better relationship with God and faith and has really come full circle about feeling not like it. she was victimized, but more empowered now. Yeah. Well, and, uh, I think you've also taken pains to to show what a slippery slope it can be and how easy it is to mistake one thing for the other. I don't think it's necessarily victim blamey to go, this is really murky. And there's also something to consider, which is when you're not ready or not a good fit for the spiritual path and you become mm-hmm. disillusioned, you can get real bitter and go and do bitter things. And so what I'm looking for is a tab I had open about a guy who went to India, tried to find a guru, wasn't happy with anything he found or was disillusioned by it, and then started a really intense, like debunking-esque Christian organization. Uh, It's a classic story. Someone who (laughs) wanted it all to be true, realized at least some of it wasn't true, and went on the war path to see if all of it wasn't true. Exactly. And the thing about the guru, guru stuff is that if you want to do that, there's an endless field of people to debunk, so to speak. There's a, a book that Gail Treadwell used that said was really helpful for her healing called The Guru Papers and by Joel Kramer and Deanna Alstott. I haven't read it, but it goes into this type of subtle authoritarian power that not just in guru relationships, but in all aspects of family, society, work, and how mm. the subtle techniques that can get used to coerce deeper control under a guise, like a spiritual setting. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's where you've got to be firing on all cylinders as you do something. But if you're dealing with a guru who's a little wily, I mean, you know, next thing you know, you're getting dragged out of your room at a retreat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it. It is, it is true. It's this, these problems aren't unique to spiritual pursuits. You can see how being on a spiritual path leaves you vulnerable to those bad actors, but the bad actors aren't limited to the spiritual world. 
you can have bad bosses and certainly bad boyfriends or bad spouses or whatever. And I think when you are disturbed to the point that you're looking for a spiritual solution, it's easy to forget that you have something to lose, that things mm. could not only be worse, but that you have something, you still have something of value. And I can't necessarily say what it is in so many words, but there is an inherent, you have an inherent starting place that in having blind faith or that feeling of like, I'll, I'll take any job, just get me a job. I'm, I'm desperate right. for a job. That's in that prime place for spiritual abuse. Yeah, probably spiritual abuse. And you know, it's the hardest time to keep your head on a swivel about that stuff. Mm. When you're, yeah, when you're hungriest for a solution is when you have to be the most attentive to false promises and bad actors. Well, drawing back on our interview with Augusto, it makes me think about how he said to request help from your guardian angel, because mm. that's, they're just waiting for you to ask. And you don't have to pay anyone for that. But even also in these times when you are so desperate like that, pay to play isn't a bad idea. Go to someone, pay them their money, do a do something that has a beginning and an end and a goodbye to keep yourself separate. <laughs> Thank you for the Ouija. Yeah. And it it does if if enlightenment is seeing the the falseness of the self and the fact that you are connected to this greater whole to have to be very acutely aware that you are in an adversarial relationship potentially with bad gurus and bad actors that's a, an incredibly narrow line to walk because you have to be protective of the self at the same time that you're looking to deconstruct the self. I suppose we could frame it like this. If you are so, I can think of my own life in times when I was so in need of a compass or would have mm -hmm. given anything, just be like, just tell me what to do, how to feel, like sort it out for me. Yeah. That's a time when you are, you're supposed to be connected to, let's say, universal truth. And you're so upset that you are very, very much stuck in the self. Mm -hmm. So you're as far away from those teachings as you're ever going to be. Right. And that's when you need to, in fact, get yourself back to center step by step. And so rather than mm. jutting off and joining a group that says, yeah, we'll fix all your problems, maybe you have a session with someone and you pay them the 120 and then you have another session mm. and then you're building back till you can have a better perspective about what you really need. But that idea of this organization, this guru, there is no quick fix. And I hate that there's no quick fix. I hate it. Yeah. Wouldn't it be nice? This is why I started the call on a down note. It's like all my dreams of, uh, <laughs> you just want it to be true. And instead you have to do the hard yeah. work all the time. Yeah. But it's, it's worth getting into because we, not only do we use this guru word all the time, but it's, I think if we take the guru disciple relationship as an archetype and think more about power, it's all around us. That seems fair to say, which also I think comes back to, a guru, if you are a good disciple, that's a nice to have. Mm -hmm. It's not essential. You you can still get where you're going without it. I just, I wouldn't mind all the magic too, though. <laughs> <laughs> so are you on the hunt for a guru then? Is this something that you're hoping to have a line in your path? I think I'll keep checking the tour schedule. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> 